What's up, everybody? You're listening to an episode of This Most Unbelievable Life. Yes! We're so glad you're listening. If you've been listening for a while, you know my voice. I'm Dr. Sherry Spiegel, and my co-host is my dear friend, Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. That's right, folks. I'm Dr. Paul Fitzgerald, and I'm happy to welcome you to Season 5 of the podcast. I'm honored to be here once again with my co-host, Dr. Sherry Spiegel, as we work to discover, along with you, our own most unbelievable lives. Thank you for listening. Yes. Good morning, Sherry. Good good afternoon, Sherry Speaks. I was going to say, you have just lied to the good people. <laughs> Daylight savings has got me all, all confused. Yeah, but it's four o'clock, friend. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess it is afternoon. Hello, Dr. Fitzgerald. Hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. I'm digging the longer, well, the days aren't really longer, that has shifted. Shifted, yeah, it's true. I'm digging the fact that when Eric gets home from work, it's still light out. Um, because, and I guess this kind of relates to last episode, um, we don't really dig a nighttime walk. We yeah. Like a, we like a little sunshine in our walk. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so we've been able to kick in some afternoon walks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Um, I've not yet taken advantage of it. Mm, I no. recommend it. So, yeah. Um, and uh, that is always something that I didn't appreciate at the time, like last spring, summer, fall. I mean, finding opportunities to go outside and take a walk in the middle of a pandemic were, I guess, not few and far between. But it you weren't, it, it would had to be more intentional. So you had right. to. It's like, I today I'm going to take a walk because if I don't do that, then I'm not going to do like anything outside and just going to hang out inside all day. Right. Um, and so uh, I think we both were doing this. I mean, we both were taking walks pretty frequently at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then daylight saving. And then it was like, oh, wow, this has been great. Let's do this all year. And like as soon as we fell, we fell back, you know, yeah. and whenever that was November, I guess. I mean, that just came to a screeching halt. Um, yeah. And it's like I've, I'm, t- I'm taking. What do you mean? Am I taking walks? Of course I am. Like one a month. I'm taking like <laughs> one walk a month. Um, and so I'm I walk still from my bedroom to the kitchen. It's yeah, fine. right. Yeah, for class, I walk from the bedroom to my PC. Yeah. Um, but more now lately, I'm noticing that it is lighter. Wow, it's like seven, and it's still light outside. We could have taken a walk, <laughs> uh, but that not has not yet been in the cards for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that it's still cold outside. And so yeah. I'm looking for a little bit of heat, but I'm excited by the potential of it. And I think as long as I have the ability to recognize the potential of a thing and know that it's in the offing, I think I can live with that until I get a couple more degrees on the thermometer. Yeah, But I'm, yeah, I'm super excited about it. So in other words, yeah, me too. Looking mm-hmm. forward to it. Right? Yeah. You know, long answer short. Yeah. It's so interesting because I used to really think that I loved winter. Like I loved all these things about winter. Um I found that many of the things that I loved about winter, I did not love this winter. Um Ooh. and so I'm kind of excited about the fact that this episode is our first spring episode. It is, isn't it? And so goodbye. Winter. Goodbye, winter. Hello, spring. Spring. We had an episode last year at this time that I think we titled Spring. I think we did. Did we? We put an exclamation point after it. Yeah. Did we do it at the end of spring or 
I don't remember now. I don't remember. I if think it we was came... actual astronomical spring or if it was like the middle of April sometime, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think sometime in like April or May, we were like, you know what? It's like we're doing a thing with the seasons. And then we were like, right, let's say right. we Cause, are. Yeah, because that's when we made that decision to do our seasons Yeah, season, so... seasonally. So this was the first episode of season five. Indeed. So uh... welcome to spring. It's still technically winter over here because we got a week up on folks before it comes out. But uh, yeah. When you hear this, it is spring. Yes. I think, isn't it? Yeah, it when is. The, when is it? Sunday? Yep. Uh, March 20th. Saturday. Cool. Welcome to spring. Mm-hmm. Welcome to spring. Woo-hoo. Yeah, and signs are already starting to show. I mean, there's buds on trees. The daffodils are starting to peek up a couple of inches out of the ground. The um, birds are back. The birds are back. Um, some of the birds are leaving, so the the dark-eyed junco, right, the winter bird of northern Virginia is soon going to be heading back up to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the only winter bird that I really sort of know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it looks it, it looks looks a little springy. Um, I'm sneezing more. Oh, I mm-hmm. think that's a <laughs> that's a good sign. Hello, right? pollen. Sneezing. Yeah, I'm sneezing more, and I'm not sure what out there is flowering yet, but I'm sneezing yeah. about something. Well, it's interesting. Um, I have definitely noticed a lot more bird song. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting because where my condo is situated, we have windows on three sides of the condo. And I swear we have different bird populations on three sides of the house. Mm, that's um, funny. And so like when we have the windows open, we can hear like, I mean, it's just like bird song in surround sound. Yeah. And, um, yeah, this morning cool. when we meditated, I even cracked the window. Oh, nice! Uh, so I could get a little extra. And I had, and I realized when we were meditating this morning that that was one of the things that I really came to sort of count on during meditation last year was not only my bird song but the bird song of other people. This was before we all yeah, started muting right. and having a yeah, right individual experience. Yeah. It's interesting how that shifted over the last year because that was a little over a year ago that we started the. Yeah. hour long Tuesday Thursday meditations um and it was cuz we used to we used to do it in a different a different way mm-hmm. um it's interesting to see how that's that sort of shifted um, yeah yeah cuz what you could always hear the birds in other people's yeah environments and i really dug that i did too i don't know maybe we'll can maybe we'll bring it back for a day retro maybe. day give it a try yeah. um the light is coming in the windows differently i'm noticing that too Mm-hmm. Um, in the bedroom windows and in the living room window and stuff. So light comes in a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, and I'm, I'm digging that too. So yeah, yeah, I think spring is just about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we shifted to the, um, because last week was so warm, we shifted to the springtime uh, blanket and uh, duvet situation. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Which basically means right now we're cold at night. Um yeah. <laughs> It's going great, um, but in a couple of weeks it'll be. We'll be, be glad fine. we did that. Yeah, yeah. I like uh, I like a warm bed. So, but it's like a, then I get hot and then I kick the covers off. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's I perplexing. I like a There's cold no bedroom, but I like to be warm while I sleep. Um, so it means I need lots of layers. Yeah. See, I do the same thing, but then when I wake up, it's like all the blankets are like kicked off of me. So it's like I change my mind unconsciously in the middle of the night. 
Yeah, I, I do something similar. And so then Eric will sort of snuggle himself within my rejected blankets. And then in yeah. the middle of the night, of course, I repossess them. Yeah, I get the, why do you take all the blankets? Why do you put all the blankets on you if you're just going to kick them off? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm cold now. I'm cold now. Right? <laughs> yeah. I work it out. I work it out down the line unconsciously. Yeah. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah so spring is here. I'm, spring I'm is pretty, here. I'm certain of it. I'm certain uh, of it. I'm certain you know what the topic for today yeah. is. Yeah. So this this sort of came up. We were having this conversation earlier. And this notion of certainty started to creep in mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. Um, how did we come up with, how could we come to that? What were we, what were we thinking about, Sherry? Well, I think for me, certainty, a lot of times I think what we end up talking about on the podcast is whatever's been haunting us for a week. That's true. Um, it reminds yeah, true. me of on the NPR politics podcast, they have a thing uh, called, I think they... I think they call it the click, the can't let it go. Like, what's the uh. one thing you can't let go this week? And um, so often I have something that it's not that I can't let it go, but it's like everywhere I look, I keep coming back to the look, same. It, it is haunting. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a little bit of a haunting. Um, and so um, I've been spending a lot of time noticing uh, the ways that certainty are popping up in my life. Um And especially, you know, some of it shows up in my teaching. Some of it just shows up in my ways of being in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Things that I think a year ago, a month ago, six years ago, I was certain of. Yeah. I'm totally not certain of anymore. And when I look at people who have the kind of certainty I once held, it, oh, it just, it's like, It's bristling. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, ew, um, because you totally get why someone would experience certainty. Mm -hmm. But from where you are now, you just want to rush in and be like, no, no, no. There are so many questions you you might want to ask. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, thinking about that, the one thing that I... I mean, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's like, what are the things that you... That you thought that you knew that you now sort of question a little bit and it's sort of related to that um i i think i went into this i was sure that and i think i just got this from somebody else i don't think this was actually my conclusion that i drew Mm -hmm. was that um meetings uh are better when we're all in person and so Mm -hmm. it's worth it to meet all together in a meeting room somewhere and have a conversation like like with employer like with you know, at our institution or stuff like that. It's like, hmm, if we're going to have this meeting, we need to rent, we need to reserve a conference room and we all need mm-hmm. to get together. So everybody, it's worth it to drive an hour, you know, to, to do this. And yeah. um, I think the only thing that has changed my mind on that is the preponderance of evidence that that is not true. Yeah. Over the last year, it's like, wow, we could have done this on Zoom. Well, I think it- that was, that was one of the first things that was noticed. It's like, we could have been doing a lot of this on Zoom. Well, and sometimes I feel like that that very fact that so much of what we took to be like, well, of course, the best way to do it is this way. Yeah. So much of that got shook over the last year that I find myself feeling very destabilized. Like, well, why would we ever why would we ever go out to dinner with other humans again? Right. 
Like, right? right? Like, right. Paul, we can record this podcast at a distance. Why would we ever get Why in the same space again? again? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was some? What was something that you were certain of that you, can you think of anything that you were certain of that you've been disposed of or dispatched of? Uh, I feel like there's a lot. Um, oh, I mean, and it depends on what time in my life, like, um, you know, I think one of the times that I was probably the most obnoxious in the world was like, and this is probably true for a lot of people, right after I got my master's degree. Mm. Like, oh, I was just so smart. I knew all the things, Paul. Yeah, like, right, I was so right. certain of so many things. Um, and so I, when I first got my job, um, you know, I was like 22 years old. And I thought I had, you know, in the nine months that I had taught as a person. Um, actually, <laughs> I think by out. the time I got my full-time job, I had a whole, like, 18 months of teaching. Um, I just thought I knew all the things, right? Like, I knew the best way. I knew the right answer. And yeah, that's enough time to completely understand the craft and art of teaching in an internalized way where... Right, yeah. Well, and to understand um, something like, oh, I don't know, writing, how writing works, how mm -hmm. grammar uh, is situated within society, uh, the history and the evolution of the English department, like... Oh, the things that I knew for certain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I did at the time. I, I really do think I thought those things were true, but they were fictions I had written in my head um, with lots of convenient edges um, and very little curiosity. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I recall early in my academic career when I started to try to make that shift from I want to call it, I don't want to say amateur to professional or anything like that, but from undergraduate to late term undergraduate <laughs> to early master's degree kind of kind of time. And it's like I was really, really certain about this thing that I knew. And then I read this other paper and then it's like, oh, now I'm really certain about this. Then I would go to a meeting and it's like, oh, I was wrong, but now I'm absolutely certain about this kind of this other kind yeah. of approach. So it's like I just sort of hopscotched from one island of certainty to another uh-huh you know oh, yeah. and it's like just jumping over the water in between never getting wet um just sort of skipping a, a rock off a lake from one island of certainty to another and right i look back now and i'm like oh oh poor you that's so cute <laughs> and you know god help you know um i have to apologize to many many people for that probably the arrogance of certainty that I probably brought into so many interactions at the time. It's like, I must've just been a complete tool, yeah. you know, just the like, insufferable pseudo know-it-all, you know, yeah. it's like, ugh, yeah. sorry, sorry, everybody. Yeah. If you knew me at that time, I apologize. Right. I know, but it's, it's such an interesting thing. Um, I think, it feels like we are really encouraged to speak with authority, to um, to argue with conviction. Oh right? yeah, in politics, it's a death sentence, right? Oh, to change yeah. your mind and like, be uncertain. If you waver, like right, um, I think we talked about this like months and months and months ago on mm. the podcast. I think we talked about like John Kerry being the example yeah. of like, oh no, 
I have changed my mind. Yeah, I was right? for it until he was against it or whatever it was. Right, yeah. For and it I before mean, he was against it. So one of the things that I th- where I think I am now is the only thing I feel certain of is my suspicion of certainty. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, the more... I don't know. I've ju- I've just started to notice that... Like, there are these interesting patterns where the person in the room who knows the least seems to talk the loudest. Uh, yeah. Why is that, that? Right? Yeah, why is that? And, you know, I can be also kind of funny and cute and say, and if you've never experienced it, then that is you. Who's <laughs> you might be the person. <laughs> you might be the person. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's something about certainty that demands to be heard, you know, that you know, we're certain. So I have this conviction. So I have to get on my soapbox and, yeah, you know, be let my convictions and my surety show to others. So it's evident not only that I am certain then, but, but also that you should be too. And right. um, the louder I say that and with more um, verve and enthusiasm and conviction, the more that uh, you can be convinced that I'm right with my with my certainty, and um, you know the the funny thing is that every time that happens, I think a lot of people are in the audience thinking I'm certain that person is wrong um, about about whatever that is. But yeah, it absolutely is true. You know that I mean the sure sign that somebody is fallaciously certain is just look at the amount that they're that they're talking and with the enthusiasm that they're doing it. Right. Well, there was, I was listening to an episode of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast Mm -hmm. the other day. um, And she was talking about the, um, like, the beauty of the gray area, right? And how we need to embrace, like, that, that more, like, it's not black or white. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of texture, right? right? Right. And so she opened that podcast with talking about um, an exchange where she, and I think probably, like, undergrad or something uh or maybe even when she was a i think she was probably like young 20s or something Mm. um hearing two men having this conversation uh one man that she kind of had a crush on and he says something like um he asked the other guy like what year women got the right to vote and the other guy squirms and is uncomfortable and because he doesn't know the answer Mm -hmm. and then the other guy confidently gives the answer and it wasn't until later that she learned that he gave the wrong year. Yeah. Like he said like 1918 or something. And mm. he was like, he was wrong, but he was so confident that, and seemed so certain that, you know, even though that's like, you know, kind of horrible behavior. And he, yeah. just, he's literally right. belittling the guy he's talking to. But in that moment, like, you know, she thought that that was like a suave move and it's interesting because she points out like that was hot to her when she was like in her 20s but as she gets older that kind of thing is just <sighs> obnoxious exhausting <laughs> yeah so it seems like um yeah i mean there's so many so many signs all around us that certainty and the um the appear not even the presumption the appearance of certainty is admired mm-hmm. um why do why why do you think it is that we get attracted to certainty? 
even if it's wrong, I mean, whether something is right or wrong, correct or incorrect, has no bearing on that certainty, right? Just as a, but it's like just the appearance of it. Because, you know, there are times when I've done, I don't know if I've done it, done the same thing intentionally or not, but it's like I've said something that is incorrect with such certainty that it was like, well, yeah, obviously. Totally makes sense. Um, right. And then, and then later on, it's like, wait a minute. Well, I mean, that's kind of like, half of what grad school feels like right like you just say things certainly then you must be smart and like we've we've talked about this like the number of like engines where you can go in and like create a paper that says absolutely nothing but sounds smart um you and i accepted to some of these yeah sketchy journals yeah you and i did this to kind of punk my class last week um so it it's yeah, I mean the question of like why do we value certainty so much? I think it's because I think it's built on a false understanding of what knowledge is. Mm. Like I think we kind of and again this is like kabuki theater again, right? We all walk around pretending that knowledge is this monolith that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have certainty and you have to always it's you know, like 1984, and we've always been at war with Eurasia. Yeah, right, right, and and I think the two fields that um, really um, rely on that more than anything else is, is of course, science. You know, where um, it's all your fault. It is. Right? <laughs> I'm personally responsible for <laughs> for this. Um, I'm certain. No, I invented that scientific certainty, by the way. Um, yeah. The Paul and, uh, Fitzgerald method, y'all. There, there are regrets that I have now, um, where, of course, everything research-wise is based on, you know, the findings that you get before it. You know, and I've, you know, I've, I've made this case before in, in classes where when you look at a textbook, like a, like a textbook, a science textbook, physics, chemistry, biology, whatever it is, all that represents is a, is a pile of hypotheses that have been tested that have not been refuted yet. Mm-hmm. And after, after, you know, a couple hundred years, you get all of those hypotheses and you stack them together into uh, chapters and you find it and you sell it for 150 bucks, Yeah, you know, um, and and so like science is built on this. I mean Isaac Newton. I I think it was Isaac Newton. See now I'm questioning everything factoidal that I say. It's like I think it was Isaac <laughs> Newton. Maybe it wasn't. You know the only when when he was talking about his discovery of discoveries in optics. Yeah. You know he said you know the only reason I could see so far was by standing on the shoulders of giants. So academia is built around this whole shoulders of giants, standing on the shoulders of giants. Let's see farther, mm-hmm. you know, sort of implying that there's certainty beneath our feet that we have a, a firm footing on that that lets us be convictive. I think I just made that word up. Um, in, you just have to say words like that with yeah, certainty. Could obviously, let's no just one... be convictive when, right. with what we're what we're saying. Um, and then other people will say, oh, yeah, well, you know, they obviously know what they're talking about because the way that I say it makes it sound like there's no reason to question or doubt it. And, of mm-hmm. course, the other, the other field is um, law, law with legal precedent. Yeah. You know, what's been done before? What was the decision before? And this whole idea of legal precedence and precedence taking priority, which is why it's precedence, you know, because the, the finding, the conclusion precedes the case right and and so that's the way they're going to go yeah and it's hard to overturn that so i mean there's significant structures around us all the time and clearly there must be i mean somebody must have been right sometime in right. science because look what technology has done right so it's like clearly um 
but one of the things that I talk about a lot when I talk to my science, and I'm really talking a lot in this one, so I must be full of shit, um, is <laughs> I'm, proving, I'm proving our earlier point as we speak. Um, uh, I mean, that, I mean, with, with Copernicus, right, and heliocentrism, and um, just all these models of the universe through time, and Ptolemy, and Galileo, and you know, all these people were right before somebody else came along and showed them that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Newton was, Isaac Newton was was right before he was wrong. I mean, you know, we have these tethers that link the planets to the sun and everything goes in these circular orbits, which was right until Einstein came along and said, well, space time is bent, it turns out. Yeah. And and so like science is, is, is the story of things being right until with conviction the- until, until the it turns out they're wrong. And then the next thing is right with conviction. And we're all going to follow that soccer ball that just got kicked. Well, and so I, you know, I often teach a whole unit on various ways of reasoning, inductive and deductive reasoning. Right. right. And, you know, that's, that's a big part of what we talk about in that is that like, you know, a lot of what we believe to be true is our best guess based upon what we've seen. Right. Like, yeah. You know, if you think all tigers have stripes, all you got to do is find one tiger who doesn't have stripes and it throws out your whole hypothesis. It's either not a tiger, right? Right. Or not all tiger has stripes, right? Right. And it's like the classic um, uh, syllogisms. So it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting. I also think it's funny that like... You're such a scientist. As soon as we start talking about certainty, you become hyper aware of the fact that we're talking about certainty. And so it's like you have proven the observer effect. Yeah, yeah. I am really, I am absolutely positive with 95% confidence that I am right. (laughs) Uh, To that, I want to say 75% of statistics are made up on the spot. Right. Right. Yeah. But I mean, stats are, are the study of this, really, because they've been sort of misconstrued a little bit by colloquial thought that, I mean, when, you know, a, a, a true scientist doing science right is never going to say they're absolutely certain of something. They're always going to give a probabilistic value associated with that. Right. But then it's like, well, for this hypothesis to be accepted, it's got to be at the 95% level, in which case we're not going to question any longer. And we're always going to move along like it's, you know stated fact or, or truth, regardless of whether the study was BS or done well or, or sort of whatever. So right. there's a little bit of a hubbub going on over the last 10 years or so, maybe even longer in the sciences where a lot of research papers that get revisited, that get re, uh, re-experimented, like they replicate the experiment, they, they get a different result. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh. that is shock. That is so disconcerting that nobody wants to really talk about it too much because it completely undercuts, right, the whole concept of confidence and certainty that we have literally, literally built a civilization on. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've started reading this book and I haven't gotten very far into it and I'm going to mess up the name. See, now we're both going to be very concerned with certainty. Um, But I think it's called something like... um, what would animals say if we asked the right questions? Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of what the author of that book talks about is sort of this paradox of the fact that, um, you know, how we study animals, um, you know, 
using anecdotal evidence from the farm was yeah. considered, you know, too folksy. And, you know, pe people who, you know, related to animals on the farms in that kind of way, they, you know, they were, it was too, um, they were doing too much, uh, what is it, anthropomorphizing, yeah. where they're like, you right. know, putting all the human characteristics on the animals. So what do they do to better study the 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 animals? They bring them into the lab and they take right. them out of their natural environment context, yeah. to draw conclusions. And it's like cool you've solved one problem by creating another problem but for some reason we we value what happens in the lab over what happens on the farm yeah it's kind of funny i mean the more you try to control the and i i know exactly why that happens i mean the more we try to control the environment to control the number of stray variables mm -hmm. the more out of context something sort of becomes so it's like what do you want to do do you want to do you want to have all variables controlled but one and have the thing woefully out of context or do you want to you know see it in messy nature as it is yeah and possibly be less confident and or, or not be able to say as many things as you want to about it because that's sort of this um that's sort of the give and take that 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 science sort of sort of has and animals are messier than most i mean there's something about physics that lends itself to the beauty of mathematics right but when you start talking about you know what what is this what are the mating patterns of this species of lizard i don't know i'm just talking here it's right. like that's gonna be messy from i mean you're gonna study behavior i mean let alone psychology you know or something like that where it's like what even is the nature of of confidence here with what well, we can can say um and yeah. I'm not I'm not bashing social science or anything like that, you know. Um, right. And a lot of a lot of a lot of great things have come out of it, uh, you know, um, that we rely on every day. But right. It's messy. It's messier than people think. Yeah. And do you think that we think other animals are more consistent than we are? Like, oh, let's grab these five lizards and let's draw some conclusions about their mating patterns patterns can we do that by grabbing five humans and doing the same like do you think we overextend a sense of their uniformity compared to our what we know about our own diversity yeah i don't know maybe i mean i was told he won't um, say yes because a certain answer would yeah i don't know <laughs> um i don't if 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 so um if the answer is yes i don't necessarily think it's because we're special. I think we mm -hmm. underestimate the uniqueness of all everything else. I agree. Yeah. I you know, I, I think we're just as messy as every other animal species out there is messy in what it does and how it does it. And they're um, just I, as messy as us. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are. And and I, I think a lot of this real strong urge to explain everything in nature just kind of really gets to this whole attraction to certainty mm -hmm. that we have. We want to know that the universe works in predictable ways and right. to accept the fact that it might not be doing that is profoundly uncomfortable to not only me but <laughs> but many other people might might suspect the same thing and um mm -hmm. i mean my god i mean if we're if we come to terms with the probabilistic nature and the lack of certainty of everything that's around us all the time you, I mean, what do you, what, what's to be done? I mean, why bother? Yeah. 
yeah. trying to progress civilization. You know, why bother trying to be a good person? Why bother trying to do anything if uncertainty is always going to sort of win in the end? And if, you know, you never really know whether yeah. or not something is going to turn out the way that you hope it does based on whatever best guess or evidence you have to suggest that it that it will. Right. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, what you're saying makes me think certainty is what we cling to because we're deathly afraid of the idea of chaos and that the universe is random. I mean, you got to get up in the morning, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, well, you know, to, to actually get up and have a will to power to, to actually try to do something in this world, it, it's almost like you have to have some things that you yeah yeah assume to be true you know that it's like okay these are my basic fundamental uh things that i say are going to be that my my truth i'm going to call those morals or ethics or whatever they might be and i'm going to let these things guide me and i mean and and that's what the pandemic did and i think this is where you were kind of hinting at this a little bit earlier on um one of the, like when it, my my story about how it's like I used to swear that meetings were most effective in person. I I don't think that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, but that was never questioned. I never questioned it. It's like I think I really think I got it from somebody else, and I never paid attention to it. And yeah. it's like, well, of course, meetings in person are always going to be better than than e teleconference ones. And now I'm like, eh, I don't know. This has caused me to question that. And so yeah. it's not that I thought about it and gathered data. Or anything like that and came to a conclusion. It was so many, mm-hmm. there were so many experiences of people having in-person meetings around me and so few examples of um, e-conference, e-conference, teleconference, whatever you wanted to call it then. Now we just call it Zoom, right? right. Um, uh, that I never really, really thought about it. My only experience with it is occasionally somebody had to call into a meeting when everybody was at a conference table and somebody was on the phone in the middle of it. Yeah. And we all found that obnoxious. Yeah. Right? And we all so. found that obnoxious. And, you know, we found out that they actually weren't there for the last half an hour of it for whatever technological reason that might have been. It's like, right. oh, wow. Um, yeah. But it turns out when we're all remote, that can work okay too. But I mean, that was never scheduled that way. That was never planned that way. Right. Um, we could have but been we, Skype. We could have been doing that on Skype for the last five years. Right. You know, but, we just didn't. but we all had to go through this experience before we could get that buy-in. Right. Because all that, that skepticism, right. Like yeah, um, it literally had to be taken away from us. Yeah. To, to force ourselves to explore alternatives. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting point to how stubborn and how can, how entrenched in our naivete that we can be, you know, like, um, it's funny because I am, I am very suspicious of certainty now. And I think part of the reason for that is because I am myself certain of very few things Mm -hmm. but when i was more um you know certain that i knew the right answers like um oh boy you know youth group sherry of like ninth grade like the certainty she had in faith oh i am so sorry 
for anyone who had a faith conversation with me when I was 14 years old. Yeah, I think anybody investigating their own history was certain to you, so might an apology. <laughs> right, yeah, it's so <laughs> it's like true. Like we, we both have at this point. It's like, yeah, sorry, everybody. I was I was younger then. Yeah. Right, I thought I knew what I was talking about. So. Right. But it's so interesting because even though, like, I've always... I've had these times in my life where I've been so uber certain of things and obnoxiously so. I've always really valued people who were able to not be certain of things. Um, So one of the things that I've always found like so fascinating about my husband is he is still one of the smartest human beings I've ever met, Mm -hmm. right? There are very few things... Um, that he can't learn, I think. Mm. Um, and, you know, the guy has a bachelor's in physics, you know, minors in math, astronomy, and English. Um, you know, three he's, minors? Yeah, he has three minors. Yeah. He was oh. two classes away from a double major in math. Wow. Yeah, so clearly, like, a really dumb guy, right? Yeah, yeah. add, subtract, all that fancy stuff. So, I mean, like, Eric knows... A ridiculous amount of stuff. And then on top of that, he has like a nearly encyclopedic understanding of film and music. But if you ask him a question that he doesn't know the answer to, he will just say, yeah, I have no idea. Um, and for the longest time, I if I didn't know something, I would like try to like navigate around it and answer the question I wanted to be asked because I was so afraid to just say, I don't know, because then I felt like I would be stupid. But the smartest person I knew would be like, I don't know. Yeah. And the, the more we talk about it, he's his response for like why he's always been like that is because he's like, well, because I'm always confident I can find out. So it doesn't matter if I don't know right now. Yeah. Not knowing is not valued. Or that might be overly simplified. I mean, I think more people are asking this question now, I think, than previously had. But it's like, you don't really get points for not knowing. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, you you don't get hired because of what you don't know. (laughs) It's like, uh, so what do you do? It's like, I have no idea. It's like, great, you're hired. Come work with, you know. It's like, it it, it sort of doesn't work that way, it it seems. I mean, the skills are different from knowledge or different from whatever, I think, sort of, maybe mm-hmm. they're not. Um, but it's curious what hesitation there can be with admitting that you don't necessarily know. I mean, one of the big things that I um, did assume to be true earlier, like earlier in my life, like elementary, high school, something that I was certain of was that everybody else knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that and it's like, I had don't, I don't think I had any reason for thinking again, but it's like, it was unquestioned, mm-hmm. you know, and it took me a long time to stumble across. Um, what if that's not true? Right. You know, right. what if, what if nobody knows anything more than, than you do? Um, what if everybody doesn't have it all figured out any more than you have it all figured out? And it took a long time to stumble across that. But just, I, rem- I remember, I mean, I can feel oh, yeah. it, what it was like when I was younger. It's like, well, of course everybody has it all figured out. What's wrong with me? Um, That's for the longest time. Like, like I, I, that I resonate with that because 
for the longest time, I went through life with the working assumption that I was always the dumbest person in the room. Yeah, right. Um, um, and so, like, you know, it doesn't surprise me that I don't know things because, in my mind, I don't know anything. Yeah, of course you don't know, right? Cause... right of course. Like, dummy over here, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, at some point along the way, I started realizing that I do actually know a few things now and again pick something up here and there uh, here and there just just on occasion this little that um but i don't know it's so amazing to me now how many people like you look in a room and you think everyone else thinks they've like knows that they're amazing yeah and then like you look under the surface and you realize like we're all faking it here yeah. we all think we're the dumb one right, right. um you know, and it's like even with us, like I remember like uh being like, Wow, you know, I gotta I gotta make sure to impress Paul Fitzgerald, I gotta convince him that I'm smart. And I spent a lot of time interviewing for that job. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is I was like, Ooh, I have to make sure that I really come across being smart to Sherry Spiegel because I've been interviewing for this job for a long time. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's kinda of funny that we both had the exact same, you know. Yeah, uh, we have to make we have to make this other person think that we know what we're talking about here, kind right? Of thing. Talk about kabuki, you know? Yeah, kabuki theater. Well, I love that. I think we're far enough past that to now. I can ask you a question like, "What do you know about gazelles?" And you can tell me, "I don't know that don't they know. poop." They poop. Isn't that yeah, what you eat, said? To they me eat last and they poop and they get eaten by things. Yeah, it's like that's fun. <laughs> oh, I think you said. I think technically, because you texted it, you said that they. Um, I got a chuckle out of this, so I'm going to say it. Um, I think you meant to say that they feed lions, but you said feel, they and feel, I just oh yeah, it's, uh, you know. <laughs> I spent a lot of time imagining the gazelles like yeah. petting the lions. Autocorrect. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank you for providing me with. Yeah, that. sure. It's like I mean, what do you do with that? What do you know about gazelles? Like shit, I don't know. <laughs> you know yeah, not, but over not much here, more than what National Geographic would be able to say, but. <laughs> But over here, I'm like, well, Paul teaches that one zoology <laughs> class, so he must know every single thing about yeah, every animal. From gazelles to viral strains to bacterial cultures to exobiology yeah. to the whole gambit. Because, you know, but that's what, that's what again, part of this, you know, conversation does about certainty is that, you know, you know, Eric, you know, has a, you know, degree in physics. So I will can literally ask him any single thing there is about physics with an expectation that he's either going to know or be able to direct me in the right, in the right way, which may or may not be true. I suspect it is though, because he is a pretty smart guy, you know, but I, I shudder to think about that expectation about biology being placed on me because I'm like, hell, I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Beats me, you know, what do I know about gazelles? Um, but right. I, but, but that, that, that too is not true. Yeah. You know, cause it's like, well, you know, mammals, ungulates, Africa, they walk around, they get eaten by stuff. They poop a lot. Part of the ecosystem, part of the food web, probably closer to the bottom. I mean, so there is stuff, you know. Did that, you know that they stoat? I did not know that. I've seen the behavior before, but I didn't know it was called something. The stoat. Mm -hmm. That little hop that you were talking about and that thing you wrote, which yes. folks might see sometime pretty, pretty Someday. soon. Someday. Someday. Yes. So we've been um, thinking about gazelles a lot. Yeah, we have. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's all, all pretty pretty interesting stuff. But I mean, I think so many of our, our students in our classes, though, because as listener, you know, we both teach. Um, they, I see them 
fighting the same battle that I went through, mm-hmm. you know, f- 35 years ago. And it's like, oh, we've no, we've, we've, we've either made no progress or we've made it worse. You know, they all still think that everybody has, has it figured out, but them. So true. Well, and how many students do you have? Um, this is one of my favorite student behaviors. Uh, they apologize for asking so many questions. Like, sorry, sorry, but I have another question. Yeah. And yeah, what many. they don't understand is like, I am like, no, I am delighted by you. Um, I'm sorry that other people don't have questions. Right. Like, I'm like, no one else, like everyone else it seems to be in a coma. Like, you right. are apparently using your your brain and it's so interesting um how often if we have questions we think that means we lack expertise Mm -hmm. um but in reality i think i mean the further i go into my own field the more i realize well all there are is questions yeah yeah the, the kind of deeper you go into a into a field the more of these confident answers seem to sort of fall away yeah you know what's a question in biology that you think you'll never be certain of the answer of oh a biology question i won't know the answer the that i'll that it's like the answer is unknowable um or not knowable to you not knowable to me um what did ah oh boy i don't know i see i'm it, i have a lot of questions about like the really early history of the animal kingdom mm-hmm. like it it's just so weird and it's so elusive um like what actually were those first animals and how did they make a living mm. um for a variety of reasons you know it's like the fossil record sort of conspired to make that a really hard question to, to answer. Um, it's like, I, I did a talk on campus. I guess it was probably about five or six years ago. Now it's been a little while um, on the, on the origin of the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it was like, today we're going to talk about six different possible answers. <laughs> how animals arose. Cause it's like, it's kind of a fight, you know, that, I mean, you have these camps, pitted against each other, each proposing something of the jellyfish, the lowest rung. What about the sponges? What about the tinafores? Maybe it's the, are the bilaterians ancestral or are they just, you know, and you get all these, you know, people that get angry and yell at each other in conference meetings, uh, you know, talking about each other's mother and things. I mean, they get dirty in these things, throwing right. books at each other. Um, just about like, what what is the what is the base of the animal kingdom look like? Because the the branches on the tree, who's related to who, how closely, all that is pretty well known. I mean, it, it's already you know there's a lot of evidence out there, especially with stuff that's currently alive. Obviously, we can do a fairly decent job of fitting some fossils into that. We know what the mm-hmm. DNA says, and it's pretty clear um, on what's going on there. But it's like the base of that tree is elusive, persistently elusive, um, right. and the fossil record around that time sucks. Mm-hmm. And they were soft-bodied and they didn't have skeletons. And it's it's just a lot of question marks back there. 
So do various scientists basically just approach it like it's a March Madness like tree and they they pick their winner and then they try to argue for them? Yeah, yeah. They pick their winner like they pick their their sports team. Yeah. You know, it's like, what did their advisor think? Right, right. (laughs) You know, you you pick, you know, how the animal tree is structured, your religion and your sports teams, you know, all (laughs) using the same process. Right. Right. You know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I was in graduate school and you referenced like the the shoulders of giants thing, they had us um, build this academic tree to like basically try to trace our um, academic genealogy, basically. Um, And I mean, it's a real thing, right? It's still done. Yeah, it's still done. You know, oh, who's your advisor? It's like, oh, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a website out there called the Writing Studies Tree, and you, I, yeah. you know, you can you can find me in the. God, Writing I don't even check tree. if there's a biology one. I don't even want to know. Uh, English n- nerds, like we come up with these things, we build them. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's like a Writing Studies Tree, and like you can like I have siblings within the tree, like you know, um, people who have the same advisors, and it's this whole thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And so you can you can trace like you know my field's no different. Right. Like I think sometimes people think, oh, English studies is all all monolithic and we're all just cute little grammarians like sitting with our buns and our hair and like, talking about nouns and verbs. And right. Like, ooh, yay. Although I did chamomile read a- tea, you know, and talking <laughs> yeah. about the past tense. And, you know. Yeah, that's what we do. Um, <laughs> and we read, you know, Shakespeare and get our jollies that way. But yeah, like right. there are all these. I mean, even just English studies, like I don't like to say english it's not it's english studies because there are so many fields within it right um but just like within writing studies um like you were talking earlier about how every time you learned like a new theory or whatever you would be like oh this one this one that's how i felt when i learned the history of writing studies like i was i would be like oh process theory that sounds good no oh now post-process theory oh now there's a social turn and like Every new generation comes up with their new way of answering the same old questions. And that's just what we do, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. like millennials are now getting like trolled because, you know, Gen Z is like, don't part your hair on the side anymore. You know, skinny jeans are canceled. Like every generation, it's either you say the exact same thing as your ancestor or you rebel, right? Like, is that all we ever yeah, do? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, it well, it seems like it cuz I mean yeah. every almost every every science paper can get kind of sorted into one of two piles. Either um, new data was collected and so you have something new to say or, or mm-hmm. there was a new discovery, there, there was a new discovery or you know, you have a different way of answering the same old question that's been asked a thousand times before to try to settle an argument on one way or, or another. So it's either there's a new discovery or there's a new analysis to answer an old question. And, and that's yeah. pretty much your, every once in a while you get new questions, mm-hmm. you know, which is always kind of exciting. Um, and I think those are the good ones because at least they um, cause you to think about things in a different a different way that might be off on its own different track that can lead to other kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And hey, man, I like new fossils. I like new data. I like it that it shows up. I, I get a kick out of reading a new argument for one hypothesis versus another or something like that. That's always an enjoyable thing to do. But when there's like a whole new question out there, it's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. That's a good uh-huh. one. Yeah, I love that. Uh-huh. Love that, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why 
I really like, yeah, new questions like that. I love, um, I used to say that questions are my love language and I still think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I love asking questions and I don't like asking obvious questions. I like Sometimes I think people, including uh, people on this podcast, um, might think that I ask like really tricky questions to be like obnoxious, but I really like to figure out where people's certainty stops. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, And it's, it's good to hear what the limitations of knowledge are, you know, and I think it is super valuable to hear people who purport to be in positions where they can have a little bit of a voice to say they don't know, mm-hmm. um, to, to show that not being certain is okay. It's okay to not be certain of, of something. Yeah. Um, cause that's where we're, that, that's where progress is going to be born from. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think even just getting comfortable with the unknown is, you know, like every time I experience something new, I want to be able to name it. Uh, so I can catalog it, so yeah. I know how to deal with it. Right? Classified, like, yeah, systematized. Yeah. Like, who is this person in my life? What is our relationship? What do we call that? Yeah. Uh, how do we operate as a result of the terms right. we use? Right, right. Um, and I'm finding the world just doesn't cooperate with this. I think there's a lot of, because it it seems to me what what this attempt is. You know, as we're as we're talking through it and thinking about it. This certainty and this um, attraction to certainty is it's like an attempt to binarize, make binary in an inherently analog system. Yeah. Or at least analog down to the level of physical predictability. I mean, what subatomic particles do is on their time is their own business, you know. Um, but it's like we we see this inherently analog system in its way that it. Ex- exposes itself to us um, in the in the daily, and it's like, well, it's either this or it's that. It's either it's a one or, or a zero. Or, yeah, it's one or zero, and because it makes sense, and it's easier to make sense that way, and mm-hmm. it works until it doesn't. And it has this danger, though, of um, to kind of go back to where we kind of started this a little bit. It sort of has this danger of making us think that we don't have to think about something. It, it prevents mm-hmm. us from questioning yeah. stuff, yeah. you know? And it's like, had I seen a teleconference in action and participated in one fully, um, I might have changed my mind a long time ago, but my cir- circumstances didn't demand that. And so I, did, yeah. I didn't. Um, and I think with, you know, everybody has it all figured out, but me, I think it just took a lot of examples of people clearly not having it all figured out by a long shot for me to start thinking, you know what? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think they have it as figured out as they, as, as they say they do, because what I'm, what I'm seeing this person doing contradicts what they say that they have as a, as a way of being. Right. You know, they're saying one thing, but their life shows me something else. And so I'm yeah. not sure if they got it all figured out. Right. Yeah. It's it's so interesting how behavior can betray always our... betray you. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. behavior always yeah. betrays people. The other thing I'm thinking about, um, because it's this time of the semester, um, 
I am moving into the phase of my second semester comp classes where they're going to be doing detailed research projects. Nice. So this is research question week. Exciting. And I find working with students to guide them to research questions to be so difficult because um, we have used the word research throughout their schooling uh -huh. to describe something that is not actually research. Um, and so my students get very destabilized when I tell them that their research question has to be a question to which they do not know the answer. And they'll be like, well, I can't ask that question because I don't know the answer. And I'm like, no, no, see, that's the point. Right. Um, but they're like, I don't know what I'm going to say. And I'm like, that's the point. Um, and so I wrote this thing today about research questions to guide them in their pursuits. Uh, and one of the things that I included in that was that if there's an either or answer, it's not the question we're looking for. Um, and I also asked for no shoulds. Should yeah. this or that? <clears throat> no, please yeah, stop. Yeah. One of the one of the pariahs in in uh, the sciences is factors. What factors? Blah blah blah. It's like oof, factors. Come on, you can do better than that. What does the um, word factors even mean? Fa yeah, I know. That's like it, that's, it's just there's no there there. Um, yeah. What do you have? I have a question about your research question. Yes. Um, what makes it research and not just search? Ah, uh, because it's not fetch. I okay. think we've talked cool. about this before. Yeah, a little bit. I just wanted to yeah, ask that again. So, um, What's the difference between fetch and research? Well, it's the re. So research is a recursive process. Yeah. You're going to keep trying to do it. It reminds me of um, the Roomba vacuum that I have. So a Roomba does not go in straight lines. Like if I vacuum my house with my Dyson, it's going to be very efficient because I have a brain and I know where we're going and I'm going to go in straight lines. Yeah, it's I plowing the see. field. You're plowing the field, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want those nice little lines. Exactly. Yeah, carpet lines. Yeah. But my Roomba um, basically just understands how to like map the perimeter and so it will just do that until it bumps up against something that dead ends it. And then it'll back up a little bit and reorient. And then uh. it just keeps doing that. It just keeps hitting the wall and backing up and hitting the wall and backing up. That's research. It's hitting a wall and backing up and hitting the wall and backing up. So for search, we're going out and we're finding something for research. At its premise, it sounds like um, it knows that it's never going to know the total complete picture about something yeah right? yeah because search is like like where is it oh it's right there awesome right right yeah and research is well let's investigate this a little bit more mm, let's investigate this more let's investigate this more right yeah our our mutual friend kevin who is a librarian at our college like uh -huh. he talks about this like Searching is, I lost my car keys. You're going to find them in the couch cushions, and then you're going to be done. You're not going to keep looking under the couch cushions to see what else is there. Research, you're going to keep looking in the cushions. You're going to keep looking. I um, love metaphors. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So that's, uh, yeah, that's cool. So, I mean, just like to do research alone sort of demands an abandonment of confidence. Yeah. A little bit, at least from the beginning. And it's like, well, a good, if, if, a, if you have a good question anyway, if, I mean, if you're saying you're doing research and you're asking a question that's been answered definitively, or it's like, well, okay, unless you can really bring something special to it or you think you have some new data or something, it's like you can do it. But because mm-hmm. there are some, some topics that are just like verboten from research papers, it's like, oh, again, you know? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> and that's why. Work. It's like, I know, come on. That's why. good. My students right now are working on a proposal and they have to get their proposal approved. And part of that is so that I can be fair to them because there are papers that I would like to never read a paper yeah, of again. ever again in my life. And there are topics that I am certain I cannot be unbiased on. Yeah, yeah, like, for sure. Like I just know. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. You know, but um, sure. it's interesting because I do a proposal because I love the proposal genre. Yeah. Because it's inherently a genre of vulnerability. Uh-huh. Like, like anytime you propose something, like when you propose marriage or propose for a grant, like you have to put yourself out there in a way that is uncomfortable because you could be rejected. And so it's the perfect place to say, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to admit you don't know something. Yeah. And then you're going to carve out a plan to figure it out. You carve out a plan. And and part of that proposal process is, you know, what is it about this question, you know, that makes it one worth asking? Yes. You know, wherein lies the curiosity in this that's going to move something forward? Um, and it's it's not necessarily love of what value is this question. It's like, what makes this a question that you want to ask? Right. You know, what is it about it? Um, what itches the scratching? Um, what novelty you're going to have to bring to this in order to address this. Um, but just by virtue of the fact that it's a, it's a proposal implies that it's like, yeah, you don't know the answer yet. So, um, how are you going to find this out and by what method are you going to do it? Um, and on what basis are you going to even ask the question in the first place? Um, but you know, I've seen, you know, as I've led students through that coming up with a good question exercise if you think that it's a challenge to do it is downright painful uh mm-hmm. from this for the student to do it um you know yeah. just we're, we're meeting twice a week you know uh with with students sometimes when when we're in the thick of this um where the only thing i keep saying is what is your question yeah what is your question what is your question and then you know what you usually get is they 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 Talk about what they're going to talk about. And it's like, okay, that's great. That's not a question. Your your answer to this question needs to be one sentence and it needs to end in a question mark. Go. And then the, they'll give a question, but then they'll follow it up with a different one. And then they'll explain the one that is dead. And then they'll uh-huh. second guess what they just did. And they'll follow it up with a new one. And then they'll go back to the original one and how different that. And it's like, what is your question? You know, and it's uh-huh. just, there's something so insidious about just asking that. What is your question? Um, that has this ability to dig into people yes, um, and expose their thinking and how clear they are on something and the limits of their own confidence. Right. Not only in, in the topic, but in themselves as well as a questioner. Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think certainty is packed into that. Like people want to talk about their topic because they're certain what their topic is. Yeah. They don't want to talk about what they don't know. Right. And that's where the question is. Um, yeah. And th- 
it's funny because we, we had this conversation last year when you were reviewing proposals for your students. Uh-huh. And you were like, how do they not get the questions in with a question mark? Yeah, right. And so in the document I wrote about question marks today, I included questions end with question marks. Right. I thought of you. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny, though, because it, it, you, you can do this. And it's like, so what is your question? It's like, well, I'm really interested in, in what it is about the blah, blah. It's like, whoa, 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 question. What is your question? You know, it's not what is your explanation. But I mean, what a writing prompt that is for a class, right? Um, Write about something that you don't know. Mm -hmm. See what what comes out. Yeah, I mean, that's what my classes are about to do. So it should be interesting. I hope they have fun. Um, But yeah, I say questions start with a question mark. And I say that uh, sometimes when I ask students about their research question, they start with, I would like to talk about, or I believe that, or I want to prove that. And none of those are questions. None of those are questions. Right? Cultivating curiosity is something that you and I have both been kind of hot on over the last year or so. It's true. Um, Because I think one of the things that I do have confidence in is that curiosity can be, I think, I think we are born with it and I think we do lose it and I think it can be taught. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of structures in our society do a good lot of work on trying to suppress it. Um, do you think curiosity is the anecdote to certainty? Yes. That is all. I, th- I think it is. Um, I really wanted you to say. Maybe. <laughs> but it's a mindset. Yeah, it's a mindset. I mean, it, it's not, ooh, I have, to, I have to leverage the tool of curiosity on this. It's like, this is what the, um, the, a lot of the Buddhists would, would refer to as beginner's mind. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the Zen folks are into that, right? Rediscovering beginner's mind, which is exactly this. It's, it's kind of shedding, shedding away the skin of certainty that you've fallaciously built up with yeah. yourself you know, um, over the years and experiences in your life to approach everything from a, a, a childlike view of, right. you know, what is your what is your state of being going to be when you um, witness something or experience something for the first time? And, you know, you don't have to forget everything to make that happen. You just have to cultivate curiosity to realize that everything that happens is happening for the first time. Yeah. Without exception. Um. Deja vu notwithstanding, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, you know, rediscovering curiosity is rediscovering that beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to know how to cultivate that, there are things you can do. Um, practical things, uh, compositional things, like, you know, for the next 10 minutes, write about things that you don't know. Or there's a cushion, watch a sit and see what it does. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do to, to kind of not just... Um, cultivate curiosity, but show you that it can be done safely. Mm-hmm. That there's there's not a lot worth holding on to that's going to be lost. Yeah. Yeah, I have an activity that I like, uh, or really an acronym that I like, I guess, that's GLOW. Um, so what are the gaps in your knowledge? What did you learn today that you didn't know? Uh, what have you observed for the first time? And what leaves you with wonder? Mm. Cool. 
You you run through that at the end of the day, and you will see that there are many things you're not certain of. Right, right. Um, so I guess yeah. I mean, a question for for the listener could be something like, uh, "What is something that you're you're certain of?" And how would you question that if you could? Yeah. Is there anything you're sure of, Sherry? Hundred percent in your bones. Got it. Know it mm. to be true. I'm certain. I'm not certain. That's it. Cool. cool. Well, I think. So my mentor Paul Heilecker mm-hmm. says, and I'm certain of his mantra that thinking begins where certainty ends. I think I'm certain of that. Cool. Cool. How about you? Uh, how about me? Um, I still, f- I, I feel two th- things that are a little contradictory uh, mm. when I am I answer this. Um, it's something that I know to be true, but I think that's because I've decided that I, I'm going to live a life knowing that that's true. So it's like, I, I think I've made a decision to accept this as fact. Okay. Uh, the people are inherently good. Mm. Um, despite the vast evidence <laughs> that we see around us all the time. I think, I think people are born kind of leaning towards the good kindness side. And I think yeah. it's, I mean, I, so I think it's something I, that's lost along the way in a lot of folks. I think that's an interesting one because I think that there are topics in our lives where, I think it really does benefit us to just put them to bed, to not question them anymore. Yeah, right? that, and that's where that falls. That's where. Yeah, that, I think that's so. Where that, like, yeah, that is. it's like I'm so, just not even going to think about it anymore. Yeah, like one of the things that I think really helps me is, I believe because I choose to believe. Yeah. Everyone is doing the best they can. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that one too. I think right? people are doing the best they can. I mean, yeah. it's like. There are a couple of, of known things in the universe, like the speed of light is is a universal constant. Um, momentum might be a thing, like in mm-hmm. physics, um, in inertia. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, people are doing the best they can. It's like yeah. as shit show as a lot of people seem to be doing things, myself included, one hundred percent in that. I really do agree with you. You know mm-hmm. that people are just kind of doing the best they can. Yep. With what they got, with who they are, with where they are, and the causes and conditions in their life, you can bring karma into this if you want to, right? Whatever way you want to kind of get at it. I think every every second of every day, people are doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. Yep. With the I best also, intentions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I also, you know, in a similar way, I I do not question whether my husband loves me. That's not yeah. like, right? Like, I'm certain of that. Like, Yeah. Like, questioning that. Being curious, like to try to work against that, hmm, is not yeah. productive to me. Well, what if he wasn't? What would that look? But, it's like that's not gonna. <laughs> maybe he doesn't love me, right? Um, and that's you know my other mentor Louise. Like she's been able to do a lot of different stuff in life, and and like it's just a powerhouse. And one day I asked her, and I've probably said this on the podcast, like how she was able to just like put herself out there so much and just like yeah. accomplish such difficult th- stuff. Right, right. And she said to me like she always knew she was loved at home and yeah i've heard you say that before yeah yeah and so i think i adopt that too where it's like okay 
if you believe you're loved at home, you can do anything out there in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of believe that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can yeah. get behind that one. Yeah. Awesome. I'm certain we can reach consensus. I'm certain we are as well. I mean, this was the whole basis of the movie Inception though, right? It's like, what if this was all a dream? You know, how does that unravel your... <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so much of what we do just plays question with that, that, right? Like yeah. red question pill that, or blue down, pill, Yeah, you once you question that, you go down this rabbit hole that you can never come back from. It's like, I don't know if that's true. You know, um, having, an, having curiosity and a, abandoning certainty whenever possible and finding things to just kind of toy with uncertainty about you know doesn't have to be the unraveling of your psyche yeah you know question stuff i don't know yeah you can be nice and about it you don't have to be a jerk do you have frivolous things you're certain of like like really silly things that are just for you um i don't know um like food choices notwithstanding or ah, and that's the main thing i'm thinking about yeah, it's like tacos are the best food ever right right yeah like objectively and yeah. internally um there's not can be nothing that surpasses the taco i fundamentally believe that mushrooms should be on pizza i believe that pineapple should not i i'm with you there is no mind changing that's going to happen over here for that whatever that's attempting to do is not something that should be done there are some lines in this universe that we shan't cross pineapple and pizza i think is one of them but uh that's an old argument i was gonna say also paul has now evoked our safe word twice so now we've got to go yeah 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 (laughs) this podcast is now over pineapple pineapple Ah, four times yeah, that's. I mean, that's how that safe word got uh, was was invented as a good safe word. I mean, somebody got a pizza and it had pineapple on it, and they said pineapple, pineapple, pineapple. <laughs> exactly. No pineapple. No. Awesome. Uh, what do we got going on? Anything? So it's spring. It's spring. We just um, wrapped up our uh, divine abodes workshop. Just was, wrapped up was the abodes. Awesome. And that was really awesome. We went it through. Was. Uh, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity with mm-hmm. a little Vipassana, a little community work on either side of that. That was a good six-week one. That was a lot of fun. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so we're, I feel like we're kind of moving into a period of, at least in some ways, a little bit of, it's not exactly dormancy, but um, I think we're going to work on some stuff that won't be visual visible to the public immediately for yeah. a bit. It will be audio, audible. It, yeah. We'll keep being audible for a bit. <laughs> Uh, but I think we've got some writing to do. Yeah, we got some writing, got some tooling to yep. to work out a little of this, yeah. a little of that. Yep. But I think we'll have a workshop to to speak of in May. Yeah, a little bit coming up. And We're gonna we'll... take some time to. You wouldn't believe how much those workshops take. To... <laughs> it's like huh. after the work six week, I'm like, I'm gonna take a little bit of time here to recharge. <laughs> we batteries. did too. Yeah, yeah. we. We finished up this one and like literally fled our home. Yeah, fled like. for a week for different places. So yeah. that was a fun one. So I really appreciate Jerry you joining me in that Divine Abodes workshop. Yeah, it was and great. Was a, I learned a lot. A time. Yeah, so did I. So did mm-hmm. I. So did I. Yeah. Um, we had great participants in that. We did. And they we were did. super. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so be on the lookout. Uh, you can always follow us on the socials for any cool stuff that we got cooking when we have it cooking. Uh, nothing right now. Right. Um, to 
to to talk about too much, but we got a couple. Oh, it's of cooking. Things. It's just a, yeah, it's cooking. It's a slow, low and slow roast on this. That's one, right. So. Yeah, it's, it's in the good. crock pot. It's in the crock pot. It'll be ready tomorrow. Mm-hmm. By tomorrow, I mean in about a month. So yeah, awesome. Cool. Uh, well, we'll talk to everybody soon, Sherry. Thank you once again. Thank you, Paul. And happy spring. The Yay, days are spring. longer than the nights. Cool. Take care, everybody. Bye. Cool. Bye-bye. This podcast is produced by Sherry Spiegel, Paul Fitzgerald, and This Most Unbelievable Life. For more information, please check us out at www.thismostunbelievablelife.com. Sherry, have a podcast. Podcast, yes. 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 Cool.